It's the Growing for Market podcast. There was one funny situation. It was like right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think people were just like going stir crazy. We came one morning to the farm and some students had put couches on one of our growing roofs. There were no crops there yet, luckily. And then they had just left them there. So we got to the farm and there's just like three couches on our rooftop. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. So you you threw them over the edge, right? Yeah, exactly right. No. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Andrew Mefford, one of your hosts and editor of Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the magazine for veg and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. In a few minutes, we'll have shop talk with Neversink Farm, talking about farm tools with Connor Crickmore. We'll be chatting about new tools, old tools, how they can benefit your farm, and tips to use them successfully. Neversink Farm makes this podcast happen with their generous support so it can come to you for free. And we think there's no better collaborator for a podcast by farmers for farmers than Neversink Farm, where the tools are designed by farmers. So check them out at NeversinkTools.com. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Joanna Letts of Bluma Flower Farm in Oakland, California. Joanna grows cut flowers on a rooftop in Oakland, where she grew up. I first learned about Joanna from a profile in Growing for Market magazine in 2018 by Ellen Polishuk, back when she was growing flowers in a more traditional location, i.e. the ground. Then I met Joanna out at the Echo Farm conference in California in January of 2020, when she had transitioned to growing flowers on a rooftop in Oakland. And I wanted to know more about growing cut flowers on a rooftop. So she wrote an article in the magazine in 2020 talking about the move and how she reprioritized during the pandemic. Last but not least, she wrote an article called Rooftop Farming on the Rise, the Mechanics of Farming Six Stories Up for Growing for Market magazine in May of 2021. We have made all three of those articles public, so if you would like to read them, look in the show notes or go to growingformarket.com to read them for free. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. One thing I know from reading all those articles is a bit of your background, but can you tell us how you got interested in growing things in the first place? Yeah, I guess now I've been farming over 15 years. So when I get asked this question, sometimes it's hard to remember how it all happened. But I usually start with saying that, so I grew up in Oakland and Berkeley and both my parents are doctors. So I didn't have like a whole lot of plant or garden experience as a kid, but one place where I did have some introduction to growing plants was my grandpa's garden. And he moved to Los Angeles So when I was growing up, we would go visit him. And yeah, I remember visiting him and kind of like just seeing sort of the magic of his squash plants and he kept bees and he actually built us a little tree house that overlooked his garden. So I remember going up there and like watching him work. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this was a conscious memory when I was a kid, but looking back on it, 
I realized that that was sort of the one place that my grandpa really seemed content. And him and my, this is my mother's side, her parents both survived the Holocaust in Poland. Actually, their town is now part of Ukraine. But so they, they had a hard life. And I don't think my grandpa wasn't really, he wasn't a happy person, but he also was sort of like, in some ways, like a hero to me and my siblings and my cousins. And he was just like a very kind person, but also very deeply sad. And so I think at least on an unconscious level, when I got to see him work in the garden, I noticed that it seemed like a place where he really felt happy. So I think that had an impact on me. And then I studied history in college and ended up sort of focusing on agriculture. And that was in part I think because of a study abroad program I did where we were partially looking at the effects of globalization on small farmers. And I think I sort of came away from that program and was like, I want to get my hands in the dirt and like, see what this is about. And I think I felt that, you know, after having been in school for most of my life, I was ready to do something outside of a classroom and outside of being indoors, I'm a very like, I guess as many people and many people that get into farming tactile learner. And I think I saw sort of the potential maybe of the plant and soil world as a form of healing. And I'm also have a background, somewhat of a background in dance. And I think I just, yeah, really wanted to do something with my body. And so I was able to sort of had, you know, had the privilege of getting to do some uh, farm apprenticeships. So I worked on Amigo Bob's farm was my Contesano was the first farm that I worked on in 2008. And then from there, I went to Green Gulch farm and worked there a couple seasons. And then you see Santa Cruz and Slide Ranch and eventually started my own farm in the you know, I planted cover crop, I guess, you know, in the fall of 2014. So my first season growing was 2015. I will say also that one of my closest friends from junior high school knew she wanted to be a farmer when we were teenagers and she ran a vegetable farm for 10 years. So she had a big influence on me and was like, yeah, go for it. Like, see what this is about. And yeah, I think that first season at Amigo Bob's farm, I was sort of like just in awe of everything and the, all the learning that, that I got to do there and fell in love with working with plants and in the soil. So I guess since then I sort of haven't imagined doing anything else. Yeah. All right. So you were saying that, I think you said it was 2014 when you first cover cropped I guess you decided to start your own farm and put in the cover crops that would be at your your first location there at the Sunol Ag Park. However, with no land or equipment, and you found the lease at the Sunol Ag Park, which isn't a very big place, but it is a small world because listeners may know the Ag Park because we've had Fred Hempel on the podcast. They may know from our interview with plant breeder Fred Hempel of Artisan Seeds that he also grows at the Sunol Ag Park. So did all that experience make you feel like you were ready to go into business for yourself or did it still feel like a leap to start your own farm business? 
Yeah. Well, I was reading over some notes about what I sometimes say about how I got started. And, you know, I think I was just really naive about what it would take. And also like I was coming from a place of privilege of I knew that if it didn't work out, I had my family to fall back on. So yeah, it was this huge risk. And I can explain sort of how that was not only lessened by the fact that I did have family that could support me if I needed, but I also, I didn't have a huge amount of startup costs. And I don't know, I remember a friend telling me once that he said something like farmers don't like taking risks. And he said something like, oh, it's because the farming business is already so risky. And so I feel like that's really in a lot of ways been true for me. Again, it's like I started a business and a farm business like that in itself is risky, but I never had to take out a loan or take on debt other than when I bought a refrigerated box truck. But that was four years after I got started. So I don't know if the circumstances had been different. I don't know how I would have gotten started, but basically at the Ag Sunol Ag Park, I was able to get a year. So they're year leases, but they're basically evergreen. So I was able to get a lease there. I knew some of the farmers there already. And I knew one of my farm mentors, Wendy Johnson, her husband had farmed out there previously. And I went to her and was talking to her about it. And she was like, that soil is amazing. Like just really great soil and what a good place to grow. And I think that also, I was like, I mean, that's, you know, to be able to start a farm on soil that you've already been told is great is it means less risk, right? Another friend, this is a couple years ago who farms out there, Aaron of Kanoa of Feral Heart Farm. He was like, yeah, we put stuff in the ground here and it just grows. I mean, obviously there's a lot of things that we have to do as farmers to make the crops work and be able to sell them and all that. But again, like to be able to start from that place of like, yeah, you put the crops in the ground and they are, we had to do stuff. I had a compost cover crop, but to start from that place. And then the other reason I got started there at that time was Jim Leap, who I also considered him a mentor was doing the tractor work out there. So he had his tractor and all his implements. So I knew that first year I was like, oh, okay, I have land access and there's already someone able to do all my tractor work and I don't have to put in any capital to make that happen. So there really wasn't a huge amount of risk other than my own time and like maybe not making money. So yeah. And that first year, I mean, yeah, I made income, net income, not a lot, but I did make income. And I mean, I also, I look back on that now and what I tell people those first like three years that I was probably working like 80 hours a week. And like, it sounds insane because it's hard to imagine, but like, I mean, it kind of was true. Like I'd start my day at like four in the morning and sometimes I wouldn't finish till midnight. So yeah, it was some grueling days. But again, I think that was my biggest expense, especially those early years was my own time. I pushed myself harder than I wish that I had, especially looking back now. 
But then again, if I hadn't done that, then I might not be where I am, but I did make some pretty big sacrifices for the business that, yeah, in retrospect, I wish that I hadn't. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm interested to talk to you because one of the things that you've written and that we've spoken about is that it seems like you've done a really good job of, of realizing that it's unsustainable personally to work 80 hours a week and stuff like that. And you've written a fair amount about the process of reprioritizing because I think a lot of farmers who are starting out maybe don't quite hit 80 hours a week, but have a mentality of sort of like, they've just got to make it happen and do whatever it takes to make the business happen, which actually probably applies to a lot of other small businesses, but Mm -hmm. especially farming where it's seasonal and you know, the whole like, you got to make hay while the sun shines and stuff like that. So on the one hand, I think we do these things, do we do what we got to do to keep our businesses going? Otherwise we might not stay in business. On the other hand, if you do that forever, you're just going to burn out, I think, and end up hating what you loved in the first place. So it's really that aspect. It sounds like you've done a a lot of prioritizing to be able to stay in in it for the long run and not burn out like that. And also, I'm just so interested in in the model of growing on rooftops for one thing or any kind of urban area, because as growing for market is for local growers, we're really interested in this idea of being close to your customer. And of course, cities aren't traditionally thought of as great farmland, but there's a lot of customers there, you know? And so it's the kind of thing where if we could make inroads of more people doing like what you're doing, not only could we reduce a lot of food miles, or maybe in your case, we call them flower miles or something like that. You know, it's pretty, people are pretty aware now, I think because of the local foods movement and local flowers movement, that a lot of the food and flowers have something like, you know, I think 1500 miles is, is an often quoted number, may even be more in the case of flowers. As you know, a lot of flowers are imported from in the United States, in particular from South and Central America. So a lot of miles on those kind of flowers. So that's kind of I see what you're doing is really kind of the ultimate reduction of, of food miles in that, I, uh, you know, I want to ask you who your suppliers are, but presumably you're selling to people pretty close to where you are. One thing about this, the that Sunol Ag Park, though, it's interesting to me is that I think it's not a farm incubator per se. But it seems like it may have functioned in that capacity for you and perhaps other farmers. And so it's a cool model where, like you said, that the leases are, are evergreen and you meaning that you can renew them endlessly, right? It's not like you have three years to farm here and then then you're on your own kind of. Is that correct? Once you get a lease, you can renew it indefinitely if you want to. Yeah. And now, I mean, I think Fred Hempel has been there the longest which is basically since the ag park started. So now it might be like over 10 years. But yeah, unless there's some conflict of interest with the landlords, I mean, the farmers that want to be there are encouraged to stay. But yeah, it's like any land leasing situation. It's not perfect, but it's, I mean... Uh, yeah, like Fred has been there for a long time. And if I didn't live so far from the ag park, I probably would have stayed. I think, you know, there is sort of this tension with farming and leasing land of like, there, there is some 
unknown there of like, oh, what's going to happen? And the ag park does feel less like that, but it's still, and I don't think that farmers need to own their land by any means, but there's a little bit of like, oh yeah, I would love to own my own land out there in Sonol. We weren't supposed to plant perennials. So there's just things that you can't quite do that. You know, I would have loved to have the capacity to, and still feel that way of like, yeah, there definitely is this like insecurity in a certain sense of, of having to lease. Okay. And now let's talk farm tools with Connor of NeverSync Farm, our collaborator on this podcast. Hey, Connor, I have seen paper pot transplanters for years, but it's one thing that we still have yet to take the leap with here on my farm. And I also figured our audience is probably starting and transplanting seedlings like crazy this time of year. Can you tell us how to know when paper pot starts are ready for transplanting? Yeah, well, it, it's certainly one of the most important aspects of being successful with paper pots, right? One would be, you know, your soil. It can't be full of junk and rocks. But getting the starts at the right time is really, really important. And that's for, for a couple of reasons. One is paper pots can't be too long in the tray. One is they'll start to deteriorate and you'll start to lose some of the adhesion. And that'll take a long time. That'll take, you know, three months, right? So if you're just leaving them in there for many, many months, you know, sitting in water or something, which is, is more rare. But what is happens more often is that the plants become intertangled, either the tops or the roots. And then they start sticking. And so when you see those beautiful shots of people planting the paper pots, that's not what will be happening. They'll all be connected to each other and you'll be having a person walk alongside you and, and separate them, which is something you can do if you don't want to lose it. Just have someone walk and, you know, separate each one so that they don't connect. Because what will happen is they'll pull each other out of the paper pots uh, if it's the tops being connected. And if it's the bottom, they just won't separate because of all the roots, like if you've done soil blocking and they're all connected. So that's what you're trying to avoid, right? You want a well-established seedling where the roots have filled out the cell and it's a small cell. So, you know, important note is you want to make sure that you keep it well watered because it's a much smaller cell so it can dry out quicker. And it also can fill out pretty quick, right? Because if it's not fully filled out and you do it too early, then the uh, plants will just fall out of the cell. So too early as it's coming down, they'll just start falling out because they won't be, you know, you can imagine this cell just just has soil in it with no roots and it's not held together. So you want it filled completely, but not attaching to each other. You know, that's the balance right there. And with some plants, you have a very short window for that. You know, they're all a little bit different. So you got to experiment and kind of get to know and take a look and look underneath and kind of get a feeling for each one. You can start to tell when the top is, you know, coming together, you know, and that kind of happens with peas and things like that. But the roots is a little bit harder. So you just want to, you know, lift them up. You can always lift the paper pots out of the thing and take a look. Don't, don't lift them too much because once they untangle, you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. So that's the key is, is big enough so that they fill that little cell, but not too big that so they start tangling with each other. And then other than that, it should be fine. I grow them a little bit bigger only because I 
probably start things a little too early and sometimes get lazy about putting them out. So that's why. But um, I always prefer a bigger seedling anyway. Yeah. Well, I know that can be a secret to getting your seedlings to take off as soon as they get to the field is making sure they're bigger rather than smaller. So I think I get what you're saying as far as there's kind of a happy medium for when you need to use those paper pot transplants. Are there any secrets? Like, let's say the week that you planned on transplanting them, the whole week is rainy or for whatever reason, you got off schedule and things are a little bit late. Is there anything other than somebody walking by the with the paper pot transplanter untangling things to help if seedlings get a little overbaked? Or is that just you just got to assess the situation and be careful with them if they do? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the one thing about paper pots that make it difficult is that getting that timing right. It's not just about learning the transplanter. You know, like if you have a windstrip tray, you know, you could probably go an extra month and it's not going to make much of a difference. And if you take something a little out early in a tray, not great, but doable, but not with the transplanter. That's why I go a little bit longer because too short, it's just never going to work. It's, it's just, they're all going to be falling out of the paper pot. But a little bit long is sometimes okay. And different crops have different tangling. So like we do a lot of spinach and cilantro, and those really don't get tangled. You really have to go pretty long to get them tangled by the roots. And sometimes what it is, it'll just, as long as you keep your eye on it, they won't all get tangled. It'll just suddenly you'll get a tangle. And if you've used a paper pot transplanter, you can't let that tangle get down into the shoot because you can only go one direction with a paper pot transplanter. There's no reverse, right? So you kind of just got to kind of rip things up, you know, set things up again, and it doesn't work out so great. So as long as you're keeping an eye on it, you know it might happen, you should be fine. You just stop, pull them apart, keep going, and don't race. Okay, that's good to know. I'm sure that'll be helpful for uh, people getting their paper pots sorted this spring. Thanks, Connor. Yeah, sure, no problem. And now, back to the show. In the profile of you that ran in the magazine, it said that you grew a mixture of flowers and vegetables your first growing year, but that as the season progressed, the flowers required so much time to manage, harvest, and sell that you had to let go of the vegetable crops and that it's been all flowers ever since. How did you make that decision to specialize in flowers? I mean, honestly, I think it mostly came down to income that flowers make more income per square foot than most other vegetables. It kind of had been my plan to mostly grow flowers. And then, I mean, I love growing vegetables. So that first year I was, you know, I lived on the coast for a while and grew a lot of greens and a lot of lettuce. So I planted the Salanovas that first year and was selling to some chefs close to the farm. And, and then I planted a lot of vegetables that never got picked. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. I do miss growing vegetables, but flowers in some ways I find more time consuming to grow, harvest and sell than vegetables. So for me, I couldn't do both. I had thought about starting my farm with another person, which ended up not happening. And I think if I had a business partner, then it'd be a lot more possible to do both. But like I didn't know the flower market that well when I started, but I had a sense that there was a market, which, yeah, I mean, it's like 
growing and selling any crop, it's tricky. And it's not that I had zero flower experience when I started, but I had no production flower experience. So I really learned a lot on the ground. And that first year, I mean, I feel like it's like the one thing other farmers will tell you not to do. It's like, don't plant your crops if you don't know where you're going to sell them. And I planted basically an acre of flowers my first year. And I was out there by myself. You know, I had one employee who came and helped me like hoe once or twice a week. But honestly, that was so insane. It's like to grow an acre of flowers. I think maybe that first year I harvested 50% of what I grew and I had no idea what to sell anything for. And I was totally under selling what I should have been making for a bunch, but that's how you learn, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's pretty solid advice. I mean, I think it's true that you can probably make more if you want to think about it like dollars per square acre or something like that. I mean, I think flowers probably are more profitable, all things being equal to growing vegetables. Though, of course, there are a lot of differences. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing in a way that we did more gross sales my first year on the rooftop than I had the previous year on two acres. You know, and the rooftop is a little less than a quarter acre with a sixth of an acre of actual production space. But the reason for that is because especially that first year, which was 2019, we had a lot of weddings where we're like designing for the weddings. And that's, you know, that value added what I knew I needed to to do to make the transition from growing on two acres to a quarter acre. And I, well, and I tell people sometimes it's like, especially that first year, I kind of had an identity crisis. Like I felt like I wasn't really farming. I don't feel that way anymore, but it's definitely very different on a rooftop. We're basically container growing. And then also 2020 and 2021 were different as far as weddings go and the pandemic, but to be doing so much of our income as design work for weddings was also I don't know about identity crisis, but I just felt like, is this still farming? Like the business is so reliant on that value added. So, I mean, it's the way that I've been able to make it work and farm in a city where I don't have access to a lot of land. So it's like, yeah, I'm getting to do still a lot of the same stuff that I did when I started my farm and I can do it. Now I my commute to work is like a 20 minute bike ride. It's awesome. And got started this morning with my crew member and came back here to my house for this interview. So, I mean, it's just a much more easeful lifestyle, which is really what I wanted. Yeah. And what you need to not burn out. I wonder if it's just that the change, was it just that you were growing on a smaller scale or doing things that made you feel like you weren't farming? Because I also think farming on a rooftop must have good things i think just for the city as far as right we know that urban areas tend to be heat sinks and heat up more which is going to become even more of a problem as the climate warms up right so i'm thinking you being up there on that rooftop means it's less of a heat sink it's absorbing some of the rain which i realize am, am i right where you are it doesn't rain all summer long it's like winter rains yeah we get six months of rain i mean and this year was crazy here, but where a lot of farms got flooding, I mean, the rooftop can't flood. So, but yeah, it does. The farm captures a lot of that rainwater. And like you said, it's, it's definitely helping with the 
I guess the heat Island effect in the city. And it's, it's like, we have this little oasis in the middle of the city. And I mean, honestly, a lot of people don't even know we're up there. So it's like this little hidden oasis. And I'm trying to like get the word out one for the business and also just so people can come experience it and see what we're up to. And while I miss growing in the ground and all that that entails, you know, one of the things I miss the most would be growing soil because on the roof, it's, yeah, it's different. It's a container garden essentially. And I'm sort of trying to learn what that means and how to like best practices for really taking care of that soil and the plants. So you say it's a container garden and it is right. Because I think in one of the articles, you explained that the building you're going on top of is it's like 16 separate units connected by walkways or something like that. So is it almost like you have 16 big containers that add up to a quarter acre or a sixth of an acre of actual growing space, like you just said. And so is each each one of those rooftops is like a big container. Like the individual beds aren't contained. It's just that, that each, each sort of like plot, if, you know, if we could think of it, each plot is contained by the edge of the roof of the building, right? Yeah, exactly. And Benjamin Farr of Topleaf Farm, and now he's part of Deep Medicine Circle, he designed and installed the farm. So I got to actually take over from him and the farm was already set up and running. But yeah, you, you walk on to each roof And it's easy to forget that it's actually a container, except that if we're doing any kind of work where we're like digging in the soil, you hit that fabric that right now is only about in some places, only five inches. So like the plants in some places are growing in five inches of soil. The original design was for 10 inches. And right now we need to add more soil, but I didn't source the soil in time for our growing season. And it's like, okay, well now we have to plant. And that's one of the sort of tricky challenges of being on the roof. And we don't have that. I have to buy soil in what, like three yards or something is the minimum. And we get that in bags now and we don't really have anywhere to store it. So I get that soil and I have to put it on the roof. And if not every roof is ready, it's just tricky to like figure out where to put that until we're ready for it. But yeah, it's, When I'm up there, I mean, sometimes I'll even forget that I'm on a roof unless I look out. I mean, it's an amazing view. We have like a 360 view where we're looking at Oakland, across the Bay to San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge and Mount Tam. And then behind us, we have uh, the Berkeley Hills and UC Berkeley and the clock tower that goes off like every hour. So it's pretty picturesque in that sense. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because when I picture it in my mind, it's more like what you were describing when you forget you're on a rooftop. You know, I see it as like a serene oasis of flowers in the middle of the city. On the other hand, I realize our ideas of things are often idealized. And I know from the short amount of time that I've spent living in a city, you can get a lot of energy from all the other people around you. But on the other hand, you can hear, you know, fights on the street below and there might be smog or other pollution and traffic and other downsides to trying to farm in a dense urban area. I know in the 2021 article, you said sometimes mid conversation with a crew member or visitor, we're interrupted by the sound of fire engines speeding down the street, horns blaring or people rocking out to music on the street below. And the bell tower in Berkeley rings every hour. And you said, when I'm not playing my own music, I look up at the 
Campanile and listen. So what are the upsides and downsides of growing in a, a major metropolitan area? Yeah, I mean, it's wild. It's totally wild to be like, what? We're growing on this rooftop six stories up. And like, I mean, I guess one thing is when I was out in Sunol and I was commuting basically two hours a day and working crazy hours, it was like, if I didn't bring lunch, then I was like stuck out there without anything to eat. And now it's like, okay, if I don't bring a lunch, I go a block, you know, I'm in, I'm ba- we're basically in downtown Berkeley, so we can go find lunch. It's those little things. And then, you know, it's like my family comes to visit my nephew or my mom, or now we're doing tours almost every week, it feels like, which is really great just to show people what we're up to. So yeah. And the actual growing, I mean, that first year in 2019, I was really surprised about how well everything did. And I think that risk I took from basically giving up my farm in Sunol to starting on the roof was really hard because I was like, I have no idea what's going to happen. I just put so much of my life into my business and now I'm going to move it to this rooftop. And like, I can't imagine the crops growing and they totally did. And they, yeah, they're still doing well. I do find that now I need to figure out sort of how to regenerate the soil on the roof. I mean, some of the benefits include other than being in the city, being around people, but we don't have gophers. So it's like that Dahlia crop. I mean, while I haven't quite figured out how to grow really great Dahlias, I mean, we don't have gophers or even the ranunculus. I mean, my last year growing ranunculus in Sunol, I think the gophers ate over half of my crop. Granted, I wasn't trapping the gophers because I was just like, didn't have the time to care, but And I was commuting and I was like, well, it, yeah, it didn't make it a priority. So yeah. And there's a way in which having a smaller space to grow really has forced me to, I don't know, do everything better, but really kind of get that ship as tight as I can. And I'm still working on that, like being able to turn over beds quickly and have the next crop ready to go in and try to focus on crops that I know are going to do well and sell well, which is also, of course, a tricky thing to figure out. I will say flowers, July tends to be a month that isn't great to sell flowers. And that's still when we have the most. And I'm like, how do I get out of this rhythm? But it's so hard not it's like in April, that's when we're planting. So like inevitably we're going to have flowers in July. And then right now our biggest pest, which I know on the ground can also be an issue, but is crows. So they'll pull out all the baby starts if we don't cover. So now we're like covering every roof after we plant with shade cloth to protect those plants Yeah, it's a little cumbersome, but I'm like, yeah, we figured it out. We've outsmarted them. And now they have figured out how to get in under that shade cloth and pull starts out. But luckily, they're not doing it like crazy. Well, the two other biggest challenges of the roof would be that everything has to go up and down the elevator. And we only have one elevator for the building. It's a residential building. I want to say there's like 200 people that live there. So we're sharing that elevator and it does go out sometimes. I think, or last week they were doing maintenance on it and it was like, oh, okay. 
Luckily, it wasn't a crazy harvest day. And then the irrigation has been tricky. It's just never quite worked right. It is on a timer because we wouldn't be able to manually irrigate because in the summer we're watering two to three times a day for small amounts of time. And every roof is its own system. So there's 16 different systems that we're managing, but the rain bird ultimately should be, we're programming it, but there's just been issues with it that I haven't quite figured out. Yeah. And that's also an interesting, with the building that I'm on, any excess water drains to the street. It'd be really awesome if somebody wanted to build a rooftop farm and build in like a water recycling program, either just from the farm or potentially using water from the units themselves, having some sort of like tertiary water recycling thing. I mean, complicated and probably lots of city permitting stuff, but, and because in California we have been in a drought, I think a lot about water use and we are on city water. So we're using drinking water to irrigate our crops. So yeah, that's something I think a lot about. And now we're planting everything into landscape fabric, which to manage for weeds. And then also as you know, it acts as a mulch to hold in some moisture. Yeah. And then that shade cloth helps too. So sometimes we'll keep it up the whole time for a crop, even though it was really meant just to protect from the crows. And where are your weeds coming from up there on the roof? Are they blowing in or are they in your, your soil mix or where are they coming from? So I got there, let's see, in 2019 and the farm was built with the building in the fall of 2016. So between the time of the farm starting and when I got there, there were no weeds at the beginning, right? It was fresh soil. So I think they came in on plant starts, on wind, birds bringing them up there. I think the velt grass, I mean, if you let it go to seed, it just, it sets so much seed. And it's not like for that particular weed for our actual crop production, it's not a horrible weed, but we have hedgerows around every roof and it just kind of takes over. So we're actually started sort of replanting all the hedgerows and planting into fabric to manage for that grass. The weeds feel more manageable on the roof than they did on a field scale. I guess that'd be in part, even we do have some rhizomous grasses, but if we have that weed on one roof, it doesn't mean it's on another roof because they're contained. It feels easier to manage. And the soil is so friable. I mean, you can pull those grasses out pretty relatively easily. We have so much weed pressure now that we really had to switch to using landscape fabric. Interesting. I want to just loop back to the crows. Do they eat your seedlings that you transplant or they just have a good time pulling them out? I mean, yeah, who knows what they're up to? I guess they just <laughs> like pulling them out. I mean, I'd say on most of the other farms I worked on and then in Sunol as well. Yeah. They're just like, you're like, what are you doing? You just pulled it out. Like you didn't do anything with the start. You know, I think we had some ideas out in Sunol that they wanted water. So Kanoa, another farmer like would put out these little dishes of water for them. 
I don't know that it really helped. Other farmers, you know, had scarecrows and stuff. Again, I don't know how much that actually worked. So it's like, are they just being annoying or are they looking for little insects to eat? I really don't know. Most recently, there was a crop that they had been pulling out and finally they stopped. But then I had our high school interns hand weeding on that bed and they must, the crows must have seen them in there working and they went back after that and started pulling them out again. But it's just like, I don't know really what they're up to. Who knows what, I mean, crows are pretty smart, right? Maybe with AI, we'll figure out how to communicate with them and we can just like come to an uh, arrangement. That's actually something I always thought about groundhogs because we, we would have groundhogs that would go along and take like one bite out of every head of lettuce until, you know, instead of like, I could, like, I could kind of live with it if they would just eat, like eat one and go away. But it's almost like they were just like tasting them all to see which one was the best or something. They did so much damage. It's, it's like, I would have negotiated if that were possible. So one thing I did want to ask you about is your hedgerows. I know that's so I think, uh, you know, you mentioned this in your article and you just bring it up now. Am I right that you have hedgerows on the edges of all of these the rooftops that you're growing on? Yes. Yeah. And are the hedgerows, is it like a perennial that you can cut for a cut flower or are they there to act as a windbreak and hold the soil and kind of shelter? I I know some people use hedgerows to shelter other crops from wind. So can you tell me a little bit about your hedgerows? Yeah. So Ben planted them originally. And I think his thought was, about beneficial planting. So a lot of them are California natives um, and also for windbreak. The issue on the roof has been that a lot of the plants he planted have actually gotten too large. And like, it's interesting. So there's the plant California coffee berry. Sometimes we'll cut it back to the ground and then it comes back just as happy. There is no barrier in the soil from those perennial plantings. So they will grow their roots horizontally into our growing beds and that becomes a problem. So for a while, we actually would dig down. Every time we turned over a roof, we would dig down in the pathway next to the perennial planting and root prune. And it was really, I mean, pretty cumbersome. And now we did take out actually a lot of the larger plants. So Ceanothus, which is a California native, we actually took most of those out because they were just so aggressive in their growing habit. But it has meant that we don't have as much of a wind barrier and they were beautiful. I loved the way they looked, but most recently the owners of the building have also asked us to keep those from hanging over the building. Even though it looks beautiful from the ground, they sort of began to worry that it was affecting the actual building itself. So now we kind of have to like make sure that they don't get too big. But most of the hedgerows, even though a lot of them I didn't plant, we do cut off of for our design work. And now this year, because we are turning a lot of them over. And so one of them we just planted in raspberry, which is a great foliage to cut from. And there's, you know, they're going to grow into our growing beds, but it does feel somewhat manageable to stop that from happening, taking over. Yeah. We have some friends who'd planted hops on the edge of a market garden area. 
And they regretted it because the hops did the same thing. They were so, I guess I didn't realize this and they didn't either, but that hops would, the hops are, are very aggressive of creeping out into their, into their growing beds. And it's almost hard to get rid of them. Yeah. Like there are some plants that I want to take out that feel too hard to get out. They're just sort of taken over. I mean, well, mint for one, but because the soil is the way I describe it is it's like a potting mix. So it's so easy to work in that like we can get out runners pretty easily. Hops, I haven't tried planting. I love hops. I was like, oh, maybe I should try planting that. <laughs> but yeah, you yeah, I have to be careful. Yeah. Plant one, see how it goes. Yeah, exactly. Until you have 15. We have planted clematis, which is like really, I love the plant and there's so many different forms and very popular with wedding florists. A friend told me that their roots are very vigorous. I mean, I haven't quite noticed that, but it hasn't been that long since we planted. And technically I'm not allowed, I'm not supposed to let anything hang over the roof, but ideally I'd be able to plant some of those hedgerows with vines that can kind of hang down the roof and utilize some of that vertical growing space. Yeah. Grow outside the box a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So what do bed flips look like for you? Can you just walk us through what, what when you get to the end of a crop, how you sort of like renovate and go again with the next crop? Yeah. So it's changed over the years and changed more recently. So last year, the way we did it was we would cut down the crop that if, when it was done, cover it with a silage tarp. So depending on the time of year, leave it for a month or something, maybe a little less. And if we needed to get in right away, then less. Let the crop desiccate a little bit. So we're not taking as much residue off of the roof. And ideally we're not taking soil, which does happen anytime you take a crop off the roof, there's no way to not get soil. So if we can leave it in place a little while, before that happens. But then essentially, depending on how bulky it is, we'll like put it into tarps, take it down the elevator, either put it in our little green bins that we have that go to the city compost or fill up a van and take it to the city compost. And then we would add amendments and fork and rake the beds. But yeah, I mean, it's only in some places five inches deep. So we're just kind of like loosening the soil a little bit and trying to manage for weeds. And when we use the silage, when we were using silage tarps, I mean, we, when we would take it off, sometimes it's like the beds were perfect. Like we almost didn't, we didn't really need to do any forking or anything as much as I can. We're kind of like trying to reduce also our labor just for efficiencies. But one thing, I guess this is sort of like a unique situation, but we're a residential building. All the residents have access to the farm and they really want to make sure that it's like picturesque. In their ideal world, there's crops growing all the time and there's flowers growing all the time. You know, I did my best to sort of explain like there's a season and we're not really able to grow flowers in the winter. But so the silage tarps, are kind of an eyesore. So I don't know that we're going to be able to continue using those. But one thing now is with the landscape fabric, for example, 
where we planted ranunculus and anemone corms, we're actually able to just leave those corms in the ground and plant the summer crop on top of them. So it's sort of like, it's a no-till system because we can't fork the beds when we have the corms in there. And it worked last year. It was the first year I really tried it. And we planted lisianthus on top of those corms. But lisianthus are really shallow rooted plants. So this year we planted zinnias on top of those corms. And like the corms are basically almost at soil level. When we were planting the zinnias, I was like, oh, we kind of have to plant around these corms, but we're planting into fabric. So that's a little tricky. And I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. I mean, hopefully it works, but I can explain why we have some old rooftop soil in bags at my house, but we have some of that that we added back to this and we're plant actually prepping one of those roofs now because we just took out our ranunculus crop. But we'll put a little soil on top of where the corms are, lay the landscape fabric, and then plant again. Yeah, so we cut down the crop that was there. We're going to add soil and amendments. The amendments will like mix into the soil that we add, put the landscape fabric on, and then plant. So like not a whole lot that we're doing. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting new method that we're going for. Well, that makes sense because I know that there are some places, for example, our greenhouses. I mean, of course, they started out with native soil, but we've put so much just organic matter and amendments and things to improve the soil over time. I think of our greenhouses kind of like you're describing your rooftop growing areas. Like I, I kind of think of our greenhouses like a giant pot of potting soil because we put so much cocoa coir and stuff in it over the years. It's amazing. You know, we've improved the soil so much that it's, it's as light, fluffy, amazing. It's like growing in potting soil, basically. You mentioned, though, that you do need to bring in soil and add soil over time. And is that because just the organic matter decays over time and just loses volume? Or is it or and like you said, I assume it's when you're pulling things out by the roots, it's impossible to get all the soil back. Are those the ways that you're losing soil? Yeah. I mean, I think the main one is when we take crop residue off the roof, we're losing soil. And then my first year up there, I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I got up there and there's this thicket of weeds and I'm trying to plant and I didn't know what to do. And it was kind of, you know, it was like April and I'm like, I have all these crops to plant. I'd never done this before. This was definitely a mistake, but I ended up taking like slicing off a very thin layer of the top to get those weeds out. Cause I don't know if you can imagine, but it's like, there's no soil, like you couldn't see the soil because there's, it's just a thicket of weeds. Yeah. So we just, took that little bit of soil from the top and composted it offsite. So that also probably contributed to some of that loss of soil that we need to add back. Yeah. On the other hand, it's hard to deal with the thicket of weeds, if, unless you have a whole lot of time. Yeah. In your articles if, over the years, you've talked about places that you've sold your flowers. I just want to ask, what are your outlets now? Who are you selling your flowers to? Well, last year was a really big wedding year. And I think that was in part because a lot of weddings got deferred because of the pandemic. So we're definitely seeing less wedding inquiries this year, which is a little scary for me because I'm like, oh man, okay, how's the season going to go? But so a big part of our income is design for weddings. And then we also sell wholesale to wedding florists 
and to this new vendor at the San Francisco flower market. And then I have an online retail shop and we do like a flower CSA flower subscription, which is it the way that I have it set up right now is an interesting way of doing it. We did actually last year take out one of our growing roofs. We made it into an event space and like outdoor classroom. So that was like a huge project and it's still not a hundred percent completed, but we have been able to host events and private groups. So um, my hope with that space was to be able to just host parties, get more people up there to experience what we're up to. Cause there really wasn't a good space hangout meeting space. Um, and then also as added revenue for the farm to host private events. We just had our spring party. It was the first one we did and we had 175 people come and it actually ended up. Wow. Yeah. It was even on a Warriors game day, which they were in the playoffs. Now they no longer are, unfortunately. But yeah, so a lot of people came. We had musicians and food and farm tours. So that was that was really awesome. Actually, there was something else I wanted to ask you about having people up on the rooftop. I know you said that the people who live in the building, which I think you said are, are UC Berkeley students mostly, have access mostly. to your rooftop. Does that work out? Are they respectful of the space? And are, is that okay? Yeah, for the most part, there really hasn't been any issues. I'm trying to do a little more like coordinating with the building to try to get students involved. But it's tricky because, you know, their academic year is only so long. And so it's like the faces are always changing. But I think that, yeah, now myself and the manager are really trying to work together to figure out how to kind of get the students more involved. There was one funny situation. It was like right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think people were just like going stir crazy we came one morning to the farm and some students had put couches on one of our growing roofs. There were no crops there yet, luckily. And then they had just left them there. So we got to the farm and there's just like three couches on our rooftop. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. So you threw them over the edge, right? Yeah, exactly right. No. <laughs> You, I think you said that there was something interesting about the way that you did your flower CSA. Can you tell us about that? So the CSA model, the idea is that you're getting all the money up front, which is really helpful. But I found, I restarted the CSA at the beginning of the pandemic. I hadn't done it since my first year farming when I that first year I did like a $25 bouquet. I was delivering to everybody and not charging for delivery. So I kind of had this like almost traumatic experience with it. I was like, I'm never doing that again. But when I restarted it, we have a model where we have pickups, which a lot of CSAs do. And then I also charge for delivery, but I still had trouble managing because all the CSA members would be like, Oh, I'm out of town this week, this week, this week, this week. And I had a spreadsheet and it was just like way too complicated to figure out yeah. who was when, who paid for what. So now it's still a little complicated, but now on Squarespace, there's a subscription product. So they actually just get charged 
And it's, we have weekly, bi-weekly and monthly. So whatever they sign up for, it renews, they get it bi-weekly, it'll renew every other week. And then the order comes through and we fulfill it. So I don't have to keep like spreadsheets of like, oh, who is when this person wanted this week off. But the tricky part is that like customers will still email me being like, oh, I'm gone this week. Can I change the order? The idea was that they could just go online and like start and stop their subscription at any time. But obviously when they do that, they might not restart. So then if people emailing me saying, oh, we're out of town this week, I just make a note on their order okay, deliver this the following week. But I've been thinking about, okay, if I take a week or even two weeks off in the summer, that's one piece of our system that would still be tricky for me to tell my crew about. Like, oh yeah, I know when this person's order comes through, they're actually on this week or whatever. I mean, I would, yeah. So it's still not perfect, but for me, it's a system that works a lot better than it did before. Yeah. That's always a struggle of how to accommodate people's changes and things like that. Because of course, like I think that's a lot of people, people who have criticisms about CSAs, a lot of the ones that I've heard is like either, you know, they get things they don't want or it's hard to modify or something like that. So I think that's going to always going to be a little bit of tension between, of course, the customer, customer wants to be able to change things and we need predictability. They want to change stuff and how to mediate that. And I guess I'll just mention that our retail orders are probably the most complicated part of the business in terms of keeping track of everything. I mean, that honestly goes for any order, even if it's wholesale. So the way that I have decided to do it is that we really don't take orders under $50 because I basically have to email every customer whether it's like a pickup for their CSA or we're delivering, I remind them. So it's a lot of my time. So I don't want to be doing that for orders under $50. So like, for example, our CSA mix bouquet is 50. Um, and so that's our lowest price point product other than when I'm selling wholesale bunches to florists. And to them, I ask that they not order ideally not less than a hundred, but that doesn't always happen because it is, it's just logistically can get so, so complicated. And like, I wish my business was less complicated, but then I'm just thinking about, well, we're on a quarter acre. I don't know if I didn't have all these different revenue streams. I don't know how I'd make the business side of it work. Yeah. And then I also just a piece about that is my prices even to wholesale are definitely higher than anyone else that I know. And I mean, the pandemic increased flower prices by a lot, which I sort of began to feel like, oh, now we're actually charging what makes sense to make this financially work. So I don't, you know, I know some growers that felt bad about it and I'm like, well, I don't feel bad. Like now I can maybe actually this whole thing can work. But yeah, it's still the pricing piece is tricky. And there's a lot of new flower growers, which is, I mean, I think it's great. It is competition for me. And a lot of them are charging a lot less. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, like, you know, last year 
it's not that we hardly sold any zinnias, but I sold a lot less. And that was, I think, in big part because the other growers are charging less than me. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like slowly trying to move away from wholesale, but again, then the retail side of the business takes up a lot of time. So, and we're now offering like the retail, we offer deliveries four days a week, but it's all around town, but it still takes up time. Yeah, absolutely. So the building that you're growing on was designed with rooftop growing in mind. Can you tell us about the differences? Like how was that building built differently? I mean, I think the biggest thing would be weight. So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that the building was rated to have that extra weight of the rooftop and then the impermeable membrane that is the roof. I didn't install it and don't know quite as much about the actual design. But yeah, that it's an impermeable membrane and then like a couple more layers of fabric, then rock, then another layer of fabric and then the soil. And I think especially in California where buildings aren't rated to take on like snow weight, they probably can handle less weight than other parts of the country. So I don't know if you wanted to add a rooftop farm to an existing building, I think weight capacity would be the biggest issue. And myself and Benjamin Farrer and some other people were trying to get legislation passed in Berkeley to incentivize new buildings to have rooftop farms or solar. And we, I haven't had the capacity to like push that through, but it's like just in the time that I've been farming on the roof that I'm on, I want to say like in our view shed, like three or four buildings have gone up. So it's crazy how much development is happening just in the city of Berkeley. And I really wish there was more thought being put into what's the long-term vision for the city. And the city of Berkeley, I don't even remember what year, but they did some emergency climate. They declared a state of emergency as far as climate. And yet I don't see any actions being taken from that. And that said, like, I'm not super involved in local politics, so I don't know everything that's happening, but I know, especially in the Bay area and in Berkeley, like the biggest thing is housing. And I don't see there being a lot more focus on ways that we can make the city more resilient and create green spaces and utilize rooftops and stuff like that, that I wish was happening. Yeah. Absolutely. It seems like that would be an important part of making urban areas more climate friendly. And I think in one of your articles, you said that New York City had passed some legislation along the lines of the kind of thing that you were pushing for. Was that it? Was that they passed something incentivizing people to do green roofs? Yeah. And their legislation passed in 2019. Um, And that was sort of the model of what we were looking to do. I think incentivizing would be great, but I think actually New York City, I don't know if they have an incentive program. It's required. So, I mean, that'd be great if we had that here. But then the reality is, for example, the farm that I'm on, I mean, the owners put a fair amount of money in to get it installed. And I mean, maybe it's a fraction of what the building costs as a whole, but it's still an expense. So how do we actually get developers and new buildings to really want to fund these projects? 
I don't know. And I think, you know, maybe people in New York city have more thought on that. Cause I'm curious what's happened since 2019. Yeah, I don't know, but there is a really interesting book that I read. And of course, I'm blanking on the title right now, but it was written by some of the people who are involved in Brooklyn Grange, which you may know is a is a rooftop farm in New York City. And I remember they may have multiple locations by now, but I think it was talking about sort of like getting their first location set up. And I know they were talking about how one of the things they had to do was a lot of research and look at those structures because they had to find one that was sturdy enough to handle all that weight of the, you know, the soil and irrigation water and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's definitely doable. You know, if people are out there listening, I mean, it sounds like it would be ideal to find a building that's been, that has had a green roof in mind in the first place. On the other hand, if people are really interested in this. I do feel like I'm hearing about more and more projects going on, on roofs that can be retrofitted as well. Got, you know, you got to find the right building. And if you, people are interested in that, they can go read the book. I guess they don't have to completely reinvent that wheel because in Brooklyn Grange, and there's probably other people who have, but in that book, they talk about the specs, sort of like the load bearing specifications that had to be achieved, right? They could just cross off all the buildings that they could, that weren't sturdy enough and then go talk to owners and things like that and find a building owner who was interested, who had a building that was, that was strong enough um, to hold it. I think, and I definitely like, I read that book when I first got started on the roof and got a lot of ideas from them. And I think from a business farming perspective, because if you are on a roof, unless you have multiple roofs, I mean, it's not going to be a huge space. So figuring out what the business model is going to be, And, you know, I think the event space piece, I did like think about Brooklyn Grange as I was like developing that idea. And like, I mean, and it just makes sense. We're in a city and it was something I also feel passionate about teaching, but I, that's something I think a lot about having started my business and farm from scratch. Like how can we make this easier for people to want to get into it. And especially when you're thinking about urban growing, I mean, the reality is most urban areas, you're not going to have access to a whole lot of land. So yeah, getting creative and also like, I mean, yeah, the reality is flowers can make a lot more money per square foot. So I think as if people are interested in rooftop farming, you're going to have to like any farming, I mean, you got to get creative and how you're going to make it work. And that said, like, I wish, for example, that there was more like cash incentives in something like the farm bill for small and new farmers like myself, so we can stay in it. And I see a lot of my friends after 10 years leaving the business and like, why is that? And how can we like have people who have the skills and the knowledge and who've been doing it a while, like stay in it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in fact, it seems like a lot of the things you've written about for us do focus on quality of life. Like this quote from your 2020 article, you say, quote, when I started my business back in 2015, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, have a farm business that makes money. And at some point I realized the business needed to work for me and not the other way around. One of the most important things I've learned is to prioritize my own time If I could go back in time and do anything differently, it would be to invest in infrastructure and employees earlier on. 
I would have saved myself a lot of struggle. There were many weeks when I was working 80 hours a week or more, as you've talked about, and that's the end of the quote. But it seems like that is a classic transition I see a lot of farmers make from the early days of their farms uh, with a keep the farms going, keep the farm going at all costs mentality, which can easily lead to burnout, to structuring their farm businesses so they can have a life, you know, those who, who make it. But that's a hard balance to strike. Do you have any suggestions for how growers can prioritize a work-life balance and not burn out? Man, I think it's the hardest part of doing all this. And I think the way that I've managed to prioritize myself in a way has been because I didn't have a choice. Like I, it got, like I pushed myself so hard. I was like, oh, I, I literally cannot keep going like this. So I had to a big change. So that's one of the reasons I ended up on the roof, right? It's like, I was like, I can't keep farming in Sinol. For me, some of those big changes have come just because I've had to. And I think now I have, I don't know, I guess getting older, it's just like, I don't have the capacity to do what I was doing when I first got started. So it's kind of like, it's just happened naturally in some sense, but I also like making that decision to be like, okay, I'm going to stop work at five or take weekends off or like this past weekend I couldn't. And it's just like, okay, that's like, I know that. And even if I can't take another day off during the week, it doesn't feel as overwhelming, but I think just making decisions based on what I want for my life and working from there, although it is, it's tricky when it's like the business, it hasn't necessarily gotten easier. I don't work as much and I don't work as hard, but like it hasn't, it's not, it's still not easy. It's like, you know, an employee calls in sick on one of the busiest days of the year. I mean, I, we figured it out and it was totally fine, but it's like, yeah. And, and going into each season, I still feel like I don't know exactly where the income's going to come from. And I think trying to think more like a business owner and listening to more business oriented podcasts or books and stuff like that has helped. I think I, when I got started, I had this mentality that farming meant you had to sort of be a martyr. And I think maybe a lot of farmers think that. And I just, it's not true and and you won't, and it can't last like that. And that said, I mean, yeah, I wish sometimes that the business didn't always come first in, in terms of making decisions about the farm. And it doesn't always, like sometimes I'll make decisions that aren't business oriented. Like we had high school interns, which is a lot of work for us, but I love doing it. And that's one thing, like I sort of want the farm to move in the direction of being an educational farm, because that's where I feel like more of my passion is. And yeah, running the business does get old in terms of just always having to look at the numbers. I find it interesting, but so many of us get into this because we love growing plants and having our hands in the soil and then realizing, oh, right, I own a business. Like I have to make the numbers work. And to make the numbers work, I have to also take care of my own time, which really I think as a business owner is probably the key ingredient. Put yourself first more of the time. 
or that's what I wish that I had done. All right. Well, that's pretty realistic because it's a, it is, it's a hard balance to strike, but it does sound like you've done a lot. And I think maybe part of that is just the first step to achieving a better balance. Maybe if people are out there either, you know, working 80 hour weeks or are setting themselves up for it by starting a farm. I don't know. Maybe you do have to do that sometimes at the beginning of the process, just to do anything you can to, to, you know, start a business and then keep it moving. But just acknowledging that you can't work all the time without burning out. To go back over to the growing side of things for a minute. um, One of the things you talk about in one of your articles is how you use fertigation because you don't have a lot of soil and you don't, you know, you don't have that deep soil that you would out in the field. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you use for fertigation and how you manage that? Like, are you constantly applying a little bit of fertilizer? Is it like you feed them once a week or or that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I haven't mentioned that we're certified organic. So all the products we're using are NLP certified. It's not like this super scientific way of going about it, which somebody once sort of described what I was doing as hydroponics in a way, even though we do have soil, um, we can only manage the nutrients in that soil so much. So that's why I do feel like we rely on the fertigation, but I'm not like, Oh, what exactly does every crop need? So we're right now we're using vitamin. It's a liquid fish. And then also I think BioLink, which is another liquid fertilizer. And we're a I basically, we have a five gallon buck. All our water comes from our basement studio, which is where we have our cooler and our pack out and design studio. So yeah, we have a dosatron. That's the fertigation system. And we have a five gallon bucket that we put the liquid fish in. And last year we were doing that, basically filling it once a week with the fertilizer and then continuing to just pour water in over the week as it drained. And that way, like a micro dose of fertilizer throughout the week. And I haven't really had any crop losses or really noticed any nutrient stress. Although for example, like right now, We just harvested all our digitalis that was fall planted. And now the plants look really yellow. And I don't exactly understand why. I'm like, is this a nutrient deficiency? Is something else going on? Then in another bed, actually digitalis too, it all looks beautiful. And then the front of the bed is really small. And I'm like, well, is this nutrient somehow it doesn't make sense. And we have that issue in another bed and it makes me think maybe there's synphylins, which I have seen before, but I guess that is to say that for the most part, I don't notice any crop issues, but occasionally there are some. So we'll see, especially this year when I didn't add more soil, whether we start seeing more nutrient stuff and we'll have to sort of figure out that management a little more. I finally did a soil test with ANL labs and I talked with the soil scientist and I feel like he said something like, Oh, you actually have a lot of nitrogen available nitrogen, which was surprising. So at planting, we add a feather meal and kelp meal. And then throughout the growing season, we're fertigating. So yeah. Anyway, we'll see what happens this year, but for the most, haven't had a whole lot of crop issues. All right. 
Well, maybe we can have you back on the pod sometime again and talk about that because I, I have this whole list of questions for you and I feel like we've already, we've only gotten to half of them and we've taken up too much of your time already. So I got maybe if I can ask you a couple more questions today and then maybe some point in a year or two down the road, we could loop back with you and talk about some of this other stuff. Yeah, that'd be great. So one of the things that I did want to make sure and ask you was, did the crops or varieties that you grow change when you went to growing on the roof? Like, did you basically just take your, your the same crops that you grew in the field and grow them on the roof now? Or did you do you grow different things now that you're on the roof? So Berkeley, it's much cooler than Sunol. The average temperature in the summer in Sunol was about 95. And in Berkeley, I'd say it's 75. So I took out a lot of the heat loving crops and replaced them with cooler weather crops. All right. Because you, you got the Bay Area climate there. in, in Yeah. Uh... So I'd say that, you know, like in Sunol, dahlias wouldn't really grow because it's too hot. And now we grow dahlias, which again, they don't grow perfectly on the roof, but well enough. At least the gro- gophers don't eat them. <laughs> gophers don't eat them. So we have a lot of tubers at the end of the season. And I took off celosia and we grew a lot of celosia and sunol and that's a heat loving crop, which would probably also do fine in Berkeley. But I also had to like, you know, really narrow things down and decide what's worth growing. And I will mention one crop, which I feel like I'm kind of known for now because it has done so well on the roof and I've grown a ridiculous amount of it, but chocolate cosmos, which is this tiny little flower and actually creates a tuber as well, loves the roof. And I can't exactly figure out why maybe the friable soil, whatever. So we've made a lot of money on that crop in 2019. I basically had to hire one person just to help us with harvest. And yeah, a lot of the flowers I grow are these almost annoying annual crops that you have to harvest sometimes twice a day in Berkeley with the cooler weather, we can get away with harvesting it less, but like Cosmos and Scabiosa, it's like, they're so, so fragile, but also Cosmos, Scabiosa, Zinnias, they're not that hard to grow, which is also maybe like Zinnias, for example, why there is so much competition with that crop. But they produce so much that's been hard for me to get away from growing them because on a small scale, growing so many, we're basically just growing annuals. It's like, oh, well, yeah, I can make a lot more money on those crops because we're going to keep harvesting them for a while. It's definitely, in that sense, tricky to figure out the crop plan and also as far as like lifestyle getting away at any point in the summer because so many of our crops are really fragile that is tricky for me because we're harvesting six days a week. So somebody has to work at the farm on Sundays. But then once we harvest those crops, I have to sell them really quickly. So yeah. And that's one thing I haven't mentioned, but like my time now is mostly marketing and sales. So I'd say 80% of my time is that. And then maybe like 20% in the field. And then if I need to get more field work done, that's when I do end up taking on more work maybe than I would like because I have to do the sales and marketing. (laughs) That's just part of it, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, that seems like it's an important transition to make. Um, unless, you know, somebody can really figure out how to keep it a one person or a two person operation. I would think you as the farmer business owner, you have that big picture. You know, you're probably the only person who can do the crop planning and realize how that turns out to you plant this on some day. And that means you're going to have stems three months down the road or whatever. You kind of got to do that, whereas you can probably hire people to pick and things like that. And so that's probably just like learning what parts of the business you as the business owner really have to do and what parts you can delegate and, you know, hire people to do those things is probably an important part of staying sane for you. But I'm saying this is much more for people who are, who are trying to figure out how to keep their business going and also keep their love of growing, going without going insane. Okay. You told us about a few of your favorite crops. Do you have any other favorite crops in addition to the ones you already mentioned? I love growing herbs and some of them are also really great cuts. Anise hyssop and lemon basil are probably two of my favorites. I don't know exactly, you know, I haven't done like a crop enterprise analysis for most of my, or really any of my crops. I don't know like, oh, is it worth it? to take up space to grow those, but I love them. So I do it. I'd say the violas right now is maybe I grow them because I like them. I mean, we do make from a square footage perspective, we can make money, but like, for example, I was harvesting for a baker on last week and like so many of them got eaten by sow bugs, which is actually a big pest on the roof right now that we were out there trying to harvest for her for a really long time. And it was like, this is not worth it. But I do, if you don't have sow bug pressure or something else on your edible flowers, violas can be really fun, but they do take knowing you have the customers for that specific thing. Are there any varieties that you really love that you'd love like to share with us? Well, I guess what comes to mind is I just started growing. It's the Tecolote series of ranunculus, but it's like a single petaled type that is, I think it's pretty new because I hadn't seen it until last year or the year before. So that was fun to grow. There are like new varieties of Lysianthus that are being bred. So I'm kind of excited to try some of those. Lysianthus is a tricky one. Just I haven't grown it from seed, which technically we're supposed to. And maybe next year I'll try. So if anyone really interested in growing Lysianthus from seed, the trick that I've heard is wrapping the flats in saran wrap until they germinate. And everyone that does that has said they've gotten like 100% germ. So maybe next year I'll try that. We're doing scoop scabiosa, which is also one that we don't start from seed. And the heads sometimes tend to break more easily, but they're really a large flowered scabiosa. I will just mention briefly that we don't have a greenhouse anymore. So we grow everything in grow lights in our basement, which is another interesting part about growing on a rooftop. Yeah, just today hearing you talk about growing on the rooftop, it's made me think about how a lot of farms have these utility areas, like a greenhouse isn't really a utility area, but I'm thinking like composting areas and just places to store stuff that you don't really have. And so that must be an, an uh, well, at least that's, it's interesting to know how you're, cha- you're solving the, the lack of greenhouse challenge. And I guess it sounds like you take, you have a city composting that you can take your green matter to. 
I think we've already taken up a lot of your time today, Joanna, and I'm, I'm really grateful for you sharing it with us. But before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you if there was anything else that I should have asked you about or anything else you want to say before we go? I don't think so. I mean, if people listening want to reach out with any questions, they're welcome to. And I also do offer like farm garden consults. So if anyone is interested in that, and I know that's definitely, I've done that with other farmers, especially when I was getting started. So it can be really helpful. Tell us where people can find you on social media and elsewhere then. So yeah, I'm on Instagram, Bluma Farm, and then people are welcome to email me at bluma at bloomaflowerfarm.com. Cool. So yeah, and you can check out our website, bloomaflowerfarm.com. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joanna. Congratulations yeah. on surviving Mother's Day. And thank you so much for sharing your, your time and experience with us. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I think listeners will too. Oh, good. Yeah, really. Thanks for having me. This was great. Take care and happy growing. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Growing for Market podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. If you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital copy from the website. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. And don't forget to visit our podcast collaborator, Neversync Farm, for the best in farm tools designed by farmers at neversinktools.com.